morning, everyone. Good to see you today. As Ethan said, we're going to wrap up the series that we've been in today. We've been talking about gender. It's obviously a very hot topic in our culture right now. There, of course, is no shortage of ideas, material, things you can watch on this topic. But in this series, we've been focusing our attention on the creation story in Genesis 1 through 3 and what it says about our gender. Chapter 1 of Genesis is a summary of the entire creation event. And in that chapter, there is a one-verse summary on gender. Here's what it says in Genesis 1:27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So what this is saying is that at the core of who we are are two foundational realities. We've been talking about this each Sunday. The first one is that we are made in the image of God. This is the fundamental reality about us. This means we need God. The second reality that's built on top of this reality is our gender. We are either male or female, which means we need each other to accomplish what God wants done in this world. Now, Genesis chapter 2, the next chapter, gives us a detailed description of how God created human genders and what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, down deep at a soul level. We've been looking at this in detail in this series. And at the end of this chapter, and just before sin enters into the world in chapter 3, we read this, verse 24 of Genesis 2. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. For what reason? Well, the immediate reason we've talked about is the attraction of Adam to the just created Eve. But this is not just a personal story. It is that, but it's much more than that. This is to be the first of many stories that are to follow the template of the first man and the first woman. The bigger reason why Adam and Eve got married is everything that proceeded in chapter 2. Why did God create Adam the way he did and then say, it is not good for Adam to be alone? Why then did he create Eve the way he did as Adam's opposite counterpart? Well, it's so that what's described in this verse would happen not just once, but for most men and for most women for the rest of human history. And that's exactly what has happened. In every corner of the world, since the beginning, the majority of men and the majority of women have been getting married. That is, until now. Marriage hasn't died. It's just in rapid decline. In our country, in Europe, in pretty much every developed part of the world. For our country, for the first time in our nation's history, now let me let that sink in, for the first time in the entire history of our nation, more Americans of marrying age are staying single or moving in together, living together, rather than getting married. That's a big shift. Are the sexes no longer attracted to each other? Is that what's gone wrong? No. While the marriage rates have fallen, the number of couples who are living together has skyrocketed. So it's clear that the attraction between the first man and the first woman that drew them together is working just fine. What has changed is this idea that the attraction should lead to the commitment of marriage. The term for this message series, Significant Other, was first coined and used in the 70s when couples in larger numbers began to form romantic attachments and move in together outside of marriage. And that trend has just rapidly been increasing. 
But God, of course, did not say that the man will leave his father and mother and move in with his significant other, but with his wife. Now, why is that? Why is marriage such a big deal to God? I mean, is it just an outdated notion that no longer fits with modern sensibilities and modern life? That's the idea now. But to answer this question, to look at this a little deeper, we're going to conclude this series by looking at the old phrase that preceded the significant other phrase. The old phrase is holy matrimony. Now, we've shortened this phrase to the one-word marriage, but we're going to go back to the old phrase because both of these two words are important. Each word points to the two marriage questions that everyone must answer on this topic. They are the origin question and the purpose question. The origin question is, where did marriage come from? The purpose question is, what is it for? So let's begin with the first word, the word holy. This addresses the origin question. Where did marriage come from? Now, there are really only two possible answers. Either it came from heaven or it came from somewhere here on earth. Either it came from God or it came from us. It's a human invention. Well, did marriage come from the mind of God, or is it a human invention? Which is it? Now, the implications of how you answer that question are pretty obvious. If it came from God, the implication is we don't get to mess with it. We don't get to change it because it's rooted and anchored in God himself. But if, on the other hand, it comes from earth, well, then we can change it because, well, we invented it. It serves us and our ever-changing desires. That, of course, is the popular idea now. Marriage now is viewed as a social construct. You may have heard that phrase, a social construct. What that means is that societies constructed marriage to serve the interests of that particular time and that particular place. So then, if that's true, then the interests, if the interests change, then, of course, what's constructed needs to change to fit the interests. But the word holy points to the other answer. The word holy means that marriage came from heaven. The word holy means to be set apart for the purposes of God. It means, as related to marriage, that God had a purpose in the creation of marriage. And of course, while cultures differ in the particulars of maybe how they celebrate marriage, what this means is that down deep at the core of what marriage is, is the mind of God, not the interests or the needs or the desires of any culture. It was his idea, not our idea. Now, Genesis makes this very clear. Genesis really says that marriage is the first institution. It's the first institution. What's an institution? Webster defines an institution as an established organization of a public character. So institutions are the building blocks of a society, any society. That's why Webster says they are of a public, not private, character. You see, without the institutions of government, say, or an economy, a society can't flourish. As a society grows, the number of institutions expand to meet the increasing needs of that complex society. So for us right now, we're, we're a pretty complex culture and society. So we have education institutions, and we have banking institutions. 
and we have medical institutions, and we have legal institutions, and on and on and on it goes. Now, the minimum number of people that are needed to organize and establish an institution is two. You need at least two people to establish an institution. So the first thing that God did, the exact moment the earth's population went from one to two, was to establish the first institution, marriage. Eve was created, and then the very next thing we read is this verse. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. flesh. Marriage was set apart at the very beginning, was made holy by God. Before the first child, before family, before government, before economies, before any other institution. It was the first institution because it turns out it's the foundational institution on which all of the other institutions rest. It's the foundation for all that God has created and designed to follow. It's what everything else was meant to stand on. Everything in a society rests on this foundation, this most basic unit of community, marriage. So to mess with this institution is to eventually weaken every other institution because they all rest. They're all anchored on this one. But this, of course, isn't the only time in the Bible that we discover that marriage is holy, that God has a purpose behind it, and it's created by him. The next big mention of marriage we find in the pages of Scripture is when it declares that marriage points to the biggest mystery. It points to the biggest mystery. The biggest of all mysteries is the love of God for us. It makes, honestly, no sense. I mean, God has no need of our love. And a relationship with us is full of all downside and almost no upside for him. And let's be honest about us. We're fickle. Our hearts are fickle. I mean, we can declare our undying love one moment, and then betray that love the very next moment. And now that we haven't just turned from God occasionally, but now that we have all sold ourselves really as slaves to sin, the price of purchasing our freedom and restoring our relationship with God is unimaginable. But none of that has stopped God's love for us. For a reason that we will never understand, God took on a body and came to earth to rescue us. His name was Jesus Christ. Now, that God would take on a body with all of its limitations and frailties is shocking. That he did it for us, well, that's puzzling. But as you know, many of you, it gets far worse than this. Turns out that in order to break us out of the prisons of sin and death that we have constructed with our own deeds, he had to enter the prison of death himself with us. This, this had to be a jailbreak from the inside. Couldn't be done from the outside. That's why he took on a body. That's why he died for us, to make a way out of the prison of sin and death for us. Now, I know many of you have heard this for maybe decades but let this just sink in as if it's a new thought. God takes on a body 
and dies for us. What? How could you ever explain that? How could you ever fully understand it? I mean, that's a mystery. Not only because it's hard to understand how could that actually happen, but it's also hard to see why would God do that? What, what could possibly help us understand this love? What could be pointed to that would at least get us scratching the surface of this mysterious go-at-any-lengths kind of love? What could be sacred enough? What could be special enough? What is honored enough to capture this love dynamic? Where have we seen this kind of head-scratching, go-to-almost-any-extreme, relentless, obstacle-overcoming kind of love? Well, we know where we've seen this in marriage. So in Ephesians 5, the New Testament book of Ephesians 5, 31 through 32, we read this. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. A direct quote out of Genesis 2. This is a profound mystery. At this point, everybody's reading and saying, yeah, marriage really is. It's really mysterious how people get married and what, they will, what extremes they will go to for love. But then it suddenly twists when it says, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Wait, we're not talking about marriage? No, marriage is the jumping off point. It's the arrow that points to the mystery of how much Jesus Christ loves us, the church. What links he will go to to save us, to free us, to forgive us. It's a mystery, but marriage is the closest thing we can come to understanding it. Have you ever found yourself shaking your head in amazement and confusion over the great lengths that husbands and wives will go to for each other because of love? If you've not seen this, maybe it's because you haven't been looking at old love, just new love. I mean, that's all that gets into the movies is new love. The moment, the chemistry, the sparks. That's exciting. That's dramatic. But what you really see is the commitment of love in the latter years. Last year, visiting my father-in-law at a local nursing home, we met a wife who comes almost every day and for hours sits and holds the hand of her husband who cannot talk to her. And she do, she's done this now so far for three and a half years. <laughs> you just walk away from that thinking, wow, that's a mystery. And so God says, if you want to know the greatest of all mysteries, Look at marriage. That'll get you started in the right direction. If you've seen that kind of love in marriage, get ready for the mystery of Christ in the church. I mean, the church is full of people like us with no reason to expect the love of God in Christ. But here we are, unable ourselves even to explain why God loves us. Given our failures, given our flaws, but knowing that he will love us, not until death parts us, but actually until death unites us. And we get to see with our own eyes this kind of love that we've experienced our entire life. So marriage 
is the first institution in Genesis. In the New Testament, it points to the biggest of all mysteries, the love of God for us in Christ. And then at the end of the Bible, we see marriage is the last image that's painted for us. There will be a time when God decides to wrap up history and usher in a new era of eternity. But just as time itself comes to an end, an event will take place that will put the final parentheses on this life and this world. What could possibly mark the end of time? Well, we read about it in Revelation 19, 6 through 7. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting hallelujah. That sounds about right to mark the moment of the end of time. For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the, what? The wedding of the Lamb. That's the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ has come, and his bride, that's us, his church, has made herself ready. Huh. At the end of time, when the final chapter on this life is closed, and the first chapter of all of eternity is opened, it's not ushered in with some grand coronation, trumpet fanfare, or some kind of graduation, or maybe a great installation service. It's done through a wedding, a ceremony that we all know well. Nothing speaks better to the nature of God's love for us than a wedding. Nothing points more clearly to the purposes of God in the flow of human history than the first and most important building block of every society, marriage. So we end Revelation, the last book in the Bible, where we began in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, and that is with marriage. Marriage is the parentheses that brackets all of time. You don't get any bigger than that. So given the importance and centrality of marriage, should everybody get married? Not necessarily. You might actually be called to singleness. 1 Corinthians 7, 7, the Apostle Paul, who was called to singleness, was not married, said this, Sometimes I wish everyone were single like me. A simpler life in many ways. All of us who are married know what that means. But celibacy is not for everyone any more than marriage is. God gives the gift of the single life to some, the gift of the married life to others. Now, I want you to hear what this says. If you're single right now, take it as a gift from God. It's not a curse. It's a gift. If you're married right now, take it as a gift from God. It's not a curse. Each comes with its own challenges, but each come from the hand of God. And when God gives a gift, he gives it for a purpose. So the best thing that you can do, whether you're single or whether you're married, is to understand as clearly as possible, why did God give me this gift? If I'm single, why? And I'll tell you, it's, it's for a bigger reason than that you can get a better night's sleep than your contemporaries who are raising little kids. That is 
That is a blessing that you experience as a single person. That's not the whole reason for the gift. There's bigger reasons. What are they? If you're married, there are some bigger reasons. Now, the second word, matrimony. This addresses the purpose question. Why did God institute marriage? Well, it turns out that marriage is for our protection. The word matrimony is from two Latin words. Matri, which is Latin for mother. Monium, which is Latin for the condition or state of. So the word matrimony literally means the condition or state of motherhood. Huh. That's an odd definition for marriage. Kind of unfair, focusing on just the woman. So what's the point? Well, I saw the point at the birth of my first child. Seeing her born, I was struck by how vulnerable her mother, my wife, was and how vulnerable this new little life was. And one of the first thoughts that popped into my mind was a strange one, and that is the IRS finally got it right. (laughs) They call this little one a dependent. And they're right. Now, in my defense, the reason it was in my head is my daughter was born on January 6th, and I had been thinking, if it had been a week earlier, I would have (laughs) gotten an additional deduction on my tax return. So it was lurking around somewhere in the back of my mind. It wasn't the most meaningful response, but it's really accurate. This little one is absolutely dependent. This life is so dependent on me and her mother. She has no idea how fragile and how frail she is. I do. Now, the question you have to ask is, why would any woman take the risk of bringing any child into this world? Why would any woman risk motherhood? Well, I'll answer it for my wife. She really believed that I was going to be there for her and for our kids. Why did she believe that? Because I told her? Yeah. But I did more than just tell her. I stood up in front of a bunch of people in public and told her. And then I signed a contract and told her through that. We got married. The condition of motherhood was designed to be protected by the public commitment of marriage. Why? I mean, what power, really, does a piece of paper have to protect a mother and her child? Well, it's, it's not the paper itself. It's what the paper represents. Even before paper had been invented, to be able to sign Marriage has always been a public act. Every marriage in every culture has both a public and a private part to it. That's the way God designed it from the beginning. Listen again to to what God said when he instituted the first marriage and all marriages that follow. He said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. That's the public part. Cultures throughout all of time have done this very differently, but they all have a way of knowing these two people are married. It's done in public. It's not a secret. 
and they will become one flesh. The doors will close, and the private part will take place. Now, why would the public care about what two consenting adults do behind closed doors? Well, to be honest, they don't care. God cares, but the public could care less. What the public does care about, and for good reason, is what that act behind closed doors might produce, and that is children. The public is very concerned about that because children, we know this, they're the future. Every society that survives places a great value on the well-being of the kids because without them, that society, that culture ends. There will be no future. So how, again, does marriage protect children? Well, marriage, because it's public, is a binding legal agreement. What that means is if it's broken, and it can be broken, but it's costly to break it. Those of you who have gone through the pain of divorce know this. It's not just financially costly. It's costly on all kinds of levels. The purpose of our legal institution, speaking of institutions, in part is to enforce the agreements made between us. Because the stability and future of any society rises and falls on the stability of its private agreements. For example, the stability of the place you call home right now is based on an agreement. You agreed to pay rent to a landlord or you agreed to pay a monthly mortgage to a bank. And so you get to live there. It began as a private decision. I want to rent this apartment. I want to buy this house. But that decision went public when a piece of paper called a contract was signed by both parties. Now it's public. It's not that the public got involved in the decision of where you're going to live or what you're going to buy. It's that the public is now a witness to the agreement made between two people. And if that agreement is violated by either party, then you go to court. And at that point, a judge elected by who? The public. And a jury selected from where? The public enforces it. Why does the public get involved? Well, if a bank, let's say, or a landlord could change their mind on a whim and later alter the public agreement to better suit them, then eventually no one, there would be no buyers, there'd be no renters, because no one would take the risk knowing that they don't have to keep their word. And if they don't keep their word, there's no recourse. No one would take, there'd be no buyers, no renters. The housing market, the housing institutions would crumble. If, on the other hand, a renter or an owner could skip payments without consequence, there'd eventually be no houses to move into. No one would risk spending that kind of money to build a house or to build apartments to rent. So that little piece of paper turns out to mean a whole lot in society. But it turns out that even more important than the stability of the housing market is the stability of the children that are raised in those homes and in those apartments. And that stability rests on the stability of the very first institution, marriage. And it matters not just for the 20 or so years that those kids are living in those homes and living in those apartments. No, it matters long after they're gone. Our kids 
Our two have been gone out of the house for a long time. They're now married and they have kids of their own. But if my wife and I separated and got divorced, it would send shockwaves through my entire family. Now, it's not, of course, that the kids can't survive without marriage. Of course they can. It's not that God's grace can't overcome the damage done to a child by divorce or the death of their parents. Of course God's grace can overcome that. It's that marriage is God's design for the raising of children. It's his best context in which to provide for the future. If, however, marriage is really primarily about our personal passions and not our protection, not our future, then, well, we can change the marriage contract to fit whatever we feel passionate about. And this, of course, is the current thinking. Current thinking is marriage is a social construct. It's not anchored in anything deeper than the culture that constructed it. So it can be reconstructed or at least remodeled to better fit the current culture. And marriage becomes about our individual passions, not about the protection of our future. So if you fall in love with someone, but you can't afford the ceremony, you can't afford to get married, or you don't want to take the risk of getting married, that's okay. Just move in. And if, of course, you fall out of love, that's sad, but the door swings both ways, then just leave, move out. And if there are kids caught up in this turmoil, well, pay for them, visit them. Now, in one way, defying what God has said about marriage is, and living together outside of marriage is like any other sin in one way. And that is that it needs to be forgiven. It's a defying of what God has said, and it needs to be forgiven. And that's why Jesus came and died in our place. And the good news is, is like every single sin, God is willing to forgive this. This can be forgiven, and his grace can go to work to begin to mitigate the damage. But in another way, the sin of living together is fairly unique. It's unique in that it is a continual defiance of God that is directed at the very first institution that he set up. And that, that is a big, big deal. What I mean by continual defiance, most sin is a singular action. You know, you, you say what is wrong, you do what is wrong, then you're convicted, you ask for forgiveness, you, you get back on track, and you work to grow so that you don't do that again. But even if you do, then you ask for forgiveness, you clean up the mess if it was involving another person, you get back on track, and over time, you grow so you don't sin as much. But each sin is a single act of defiance against God. When you decide to move in together outside of marriage, you have just decided to sin 24-7. The phrase is living in sin. And what that means is you're sinning right now, in five minutes from now, and tomorrow, and next week, and next month, and next year. And it's not that God can't forgive that. It's, it's just the impact of a living moment by moment, second by second, defiance of God 
creates a hardened heart that is, it's hard to describe the impact that it has over time on a person. Now again, God can forgive, but it is a big deal. Now, if this is your situation, I tell you this because I don't want you to stand before God and say, I didn't know this was a big deal. If you've been in this church and you don't know this, that's on me. Now it's up to you to decide what to do. So my request of you would be this, if this is your situation. We love you. We're, we're glad you're part of this church. We're so glad you're here. This is not going to affect how we care about anyone. But let this be a God and you moment. Don't get mad at me. I'm just the messenger. doesn't matter what I think. No one's going to stand before me and say, Bevan, what do you think about my life? It's like, well, you don't have to answer to me. We all have to answer before God. So let this be a you and God moment. Check this out for yourself. Is this really what God says? Is marriage really this big of a deal? Because our culture sure doesn't think so, and it's entirely understandable why you grow up thinking this is no big deal living in this culture. But now that you know this, let this be a you and God moment and begin to work on what you need to do. Now, we, of course, are not the first society to weaken this first institution. That's happened a lot in human history. But in every case I am aware of, whenever marriage is messed with, it always marks the beginning of the end for that society. Sometimes it takes decades, sometimes it takes a couple centuries. But it always marks the beginning of the end. And societies come and go. But in one case, we get a commentary from God about why this particular society is crumbling. It's 397 B.C., and Israel is the culture. They are now living in exile. They're captives of Babylon. And as a nation, they are hanging on by a threat. And they are struggling to figure out why this has happened. And God actually tells them why. Here's what we read in Malachi 2, 14 through 15. You ask why. Here it is. It is because the Lord is acting as a witness between you and the wife of your youth, it turns out it wasn't just the public that was listening to what was said. Because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant, that means contract. Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit they are his. And why one? What's the purpose of this again? Because he was seeking godly offspring, children who grew up to know who God is and that they need to take him seriously and his ways seriously. So guard yourself in your spirit. And do not break faith with the wife of your youth. This is a bombshell. They're saying, why is this happening to us? And God doesn't point to the rise of Babylon as the power who's now conquering all the nations around them. That would be the geopolitical reason. But that's not the real reason. What God does is he points to a singular man and his wife and their children. And he says, that's why. That's why this whole thing has fallen apart. Now, if that's the cause of the collapse, the good news, it's also, it also can be the solution. That's encouraging. Because right now, no matter what you read, you continue to find reasons to be really concerned about the future of our society. 
almost any sociological study gives indication that unprecedented damage is occurring right now, especially in the younger generations, Generation Z and younger. This last weekend, I was up in Big Bear speaking to a group of USC college students. And I learned that this semester so far at USC, there have been 13 suicides. Unprecedented. What a tragedy. And that's not just happening on the USC campus. It's happening in our city. It's happening in this nation. And in the face of all of those kinds of things, if you're like me, you, you often think, what can I do? I'm just one person. And you're right, what can we do? Well, here's what we can do. Let me speak personally. Here's what I can do. I have a wife. I have two children. And now I have five grandchildren. I can work to not break faith with the wife of my youth. Now, my wife is a great woman. But like any marriage, our marriage takes work. And I can also help the marriages of this church, and so can you. And as we honor and strengthen marriage, please understand this. We are not tinkering on the outer fringes, the optional sides of our culture and society. No, as we honor and strengthen marriage, we are getting down to the very foundation of our society. We are repairing the cracks that have cracked everything. That's a big deal. We can do that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word. We don't always like what it says, but we're so grateful that you tell us what's going to be on the final test. So that when we stand before you, we will have no, absolutely no excuse. And we thank you for your grace and your forgiveness that can patch up what we've broken and can repair what has fallen apart. So God, I pray for all the marriages in this room. God, I pray that you would strengthen them. Help both the husbands and the wives to work at maintaining the commitments that they have made. For those who are dealing with the brokenness, maybe a divorce, I pray, God, that you would give them clarity on what they can do next, how they can, at this point, engage your grace in helping them. And then for those who are living together outside of marriage, God, I pray you'd speak to them. I pray that they would hear from you, not from me, not from our culture, but they would hear from you. We pray this now in your name, Jesus. Amen.